Welcome, folks. We're going to make a start. A very warm welcome to St. Peter's Barge and a special welcome if this is your first time with us at the Floating Church. Uh, today is a special event. It's part of a series called One Thing in Common, where we get different people with different stories to tell, but they've got one thing in common, and that is their faith in Jesus Christ. Our special guest today has uh, played for over 18 years in the top flight football for the likes of Chelsea and Newcastle and QPR. Scored over 100 goals. Would you please welcome Gavin Peacock? You're based, you were based south of the river. Just tell us about that, where you grew up. and Sure, yeah. Well, I, I grew up, um, uh, I was born in Eltham, grew up in the Welling area, Bexley Heath. Uh, I, I actually grew up in a footballing family. Uh, my father, Keith, uh, played for Charlton Athletic for 17 years, uh, went on to be a coach there, assistant manager to Alan Kirbishley in the glory days in the premiership. And in fact, um, my dad was the first substitute ever used in league football. So on the day when they decided, the FA decided that they'd use a 12th man, because it used to be just 11 v 11, if you got injured, you were down to 10 and injured again, down to 9. Uh, my dad was uh, sub for Charlton that day, the number 12, and uh, he was in his early 20s. Um, and he, uh, there was an injury uh, to one of the players, and he got on the field, and he was clocked as the first player to come on that day. So he went down in history as the, as the first substitute ever used. And it actually, is, it's a trivial pursuit question, that. In, in your, it's a trivial pursuit question, and uh, my dad actually do, hates it because he played uh, more times than any outfield player in Charlton's history. It's like nearly 600 games. He said, and I get remembered for not being good enough to get in the starting 11 <laughs> on one particular day. So, yeah, I grew up um, around the smell of the dressing room and the, and the valley and uh, going down there and watching the players. So I had a, a, a great example uh, before me and my dad, who was a good role model and, and, and teacher, um, good family who, who supported me in, in what I did. I've got a sister as well, and, um, and, we, and we grew up in that area. So was it your dream to play football as well? Was it sort of in the blood? Were you playing as a young lad? And yeah. yeah, it was in the blood. I, th- I think we got the old, some old cine film. You know, it used to be the old cine film, the reel of, of me actually toddling around, and somewhere from off the, the, the picture, a ball is thrown in front of me, and I kind of stumble onto it and kick it. So I was being trained at an early age, and... It is all I thought about doing, following in my dad's footsteps. And, of course, my dad being a, a professional footballer, um, I was actually following what is, for many, the schoolboy dream in, in this country and, and around the world. Um, so I, I grew up just trying to achieve the goal. I worked my way through my school team and then district, North Kent district, and then uh, county. Um, and then when I was uh, 15, I, I got to play for England schoolboys, represent my country. And what was, uh, was that at Wembley then that you played at, or where were they? Yeah, if any of you know much, maybe it's the older people here tonight that will remember that England schoolboys, you know, you represent England at 15, and they used to have a game that was on the TV back in the day. At the end of the football season, England schoolboys v Scotland schoolboys against, uh, well, you probably had 65,000 people at, at Wembley on that day. It was televised, and... Um, and, and, and so my life at that stage was, I went to Bexley Grammar School in Welling, and so I was kind of pressing on with my, my studies, and then I'm playing football at the same time and representing England, and this gives you a flavour. I, I played for England on the Saturday against Scotland at Wembley on TV, on ITV, um, and then on the Monday I went in to do my maths GCSE. And so that was my life, you know, at that stage. But at, at that stage... 
15 and representing England, all the teams were then after signing me for, for on schoolboy forms, looking to be a professional. And um, so you, you you know you had small teams like Tottenham and Arsenal who were uh, interested, um, and uh, of course Manchester United and Liverpool. But I chose to sign for Queens Park Rangers. Um, they had a manager at the time called Terry Venables, a um, bright young manager, went on to be England manager. And I thought, that's a, ty- a side who's in the top flight. They had an, a plastic pitch. It was the first plastic pitch in the, in the top div- division. It was the first division then. And they were producing good players, bringing young players through. So I actually obviously went to a smaller club than Tottenham and Arsenal in the hope that I'd get through a little bit quicker and break into the first team. And you were aged what at the time when you signed for QPR? I signed, I left school literally a year after that England schoolboys game. You could leave school after you did your GCSEs in those days. And I was 16 and literally after a couple of months signed professional forms at age 17. Hmm. So what was life like for you then? As a 16-year-old, you're playing professional football. Hmm. Presumably life was couldn't get much better than that. You had money, presumably. I mean, they weren't paid like they are today, but what was it like? Well, I started off on £25 a week. That was uh, what, what I got in my first few months. Um, yeah, you had, you had to earn your stripes in those days. Um, clearing out the kit from the dressing room and cleaning the players' boots and all the jobs no one else wanted to do. But it trained you up. It, it, you know, you didn't have this sense of entitlement. You had a sense that you went into the club and you had to earn your way, even though you'd come in maybe as a bright young uh, schoolboy star. Um, now you're in the real world of professional football. But then I did sign as a professional, and I had a decent contract, and suddenly I had what everything the world uh, says that would make you happy. I had money, I had a bit of notoriety, a bit of fame, um, and I had the, the great career, the, the, the schoolboy dream. Um, and, yeah, it didn't quite satisfy the way I thought it would. What place did God have in your life at that time? Mm. So had you grown up in a Christian home or... Tell yeah. us a bit about that. Yeah, no, I hadn't grown up in a Christian home, um, so I didn't go to church. Um, my parents uh, weren't Christians, um, so I didn't really... I, I kind of... You could put it like this. I, maybe I thought God was up there somewhere, um, and I prayed if I was in a little bit of trouble, but God had no bearing on my life at all. Uh, I didn't live uh, in obedience to God. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to know what he had to say in his word in the Bible, so the, the God that I w- thought was there was a God probably of my own imagination, I would say. Um, so God really didn't play a part. Um, and yet I was a pretty moral kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't go around breaking the rules. And, and like a lot of people, thought I was pretty decent. Compared to some people, I thought I was pretty decent. And then uh, it, it was the big thing for me was um, that I, did, I thought that this was what, should satisfy me, and it, and it didn't. So football was my God, and because uh, football was my God, if I played well, I was up. If I played badly, I was down, because that dictated my emotions and my happiness. Um, so I'm going through this around about 17, 18 years old, thinking through, and then um, just one night, I was living over in Barnhurst at the time, still at home with my parents. I went along to a local church, Methodist church, and I don't remember what the, the preacher said in the, in the sermon, but he... I do remember what he said after. He said, how do you fancy coming back to, to my house? I have a youth meeting. Um, and he said, uh, you yeah, know, we, we read the Bible, we pray, we, we sing songs. And I thought, I'll go and see what it's about. And um, I pulled. I remember I pulled up that night in, uh, in my XR3i, Ford Escort, XR3i, proper 80s car, by the way. <laughs> 
proper 80s car. And I had the hair to match. Well, not that one, but the <laughs> other ones. Um, and I got out, and I remember walking into that front room um, with everything the world says will, will make you happy, with the career, the money, the fame. Um, and the six or seven young people who were in that room, my own age, didn't have any of that. They weren't really in the in crowd. I was in the in crowd. And yet when they spoke about Jesus Christ and when they prayed, there was this joy and reality uh, that, that they had to their faith that, that I didn't. And, uh, and that made me interested. And then I began to hear the gospel from uh, the minister as he talked through the Bible over the next two, three weeks. Um, and then, you know, I got saved. I became a Christian. And when you went back into the dressing room the next day, say, um, did you tell people about this? And mm. what, so you were in the in crowd. Did you then end up in the out crowd? Or <laughs> what happened? Yeah. yeah. Um, no, we, in, in football, I mean, you live with a bunch of men 10 months of the year. Yeah. You know, you, you're with them every day. You travel with them. They know what your life's like. They know what you're doing off the field. And, you know, it was a case of, what do you do Sunday? Oh, I was at church. Why are you at church? Well, I've become a Christian. And then the word went around the training ground. People have to become a born-again Christian. And, um, you, you know, again, men's environment, you get a little bit of stick, a bit of Mickey taking, um, especially in football, for anything that's different. I mean, I, I remember wearing a, a pair of what I thought were really nice new loafers into Chelsea one day, and I came back in after training, went to put them on, and they were full of orange juice and biscuits because Dennis Wise had been at work because they were different, because they were new. Uh, but anything like that. But then, you see, they take the mickey and then they look and they see, does your life match your profess- profession? And, um, and over time, I like to think that there was some integrity there that, 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 that did match. What did your parents make of it, you coming back from this Bible study saying, I'm following Christ now? Hmm. I think my parents have been generally very supportive of anything I've done um, and just thought maybe it's a good thing uh, to do. Um, but as I say, that my parents aren't Christians, so they didn't really uh, understand the fullness of what it meant to be a, be a Christian. You were saying before that you were a fairly clean-living guy mm. before you became a Christian, so it's not like you were sleeping around or doing drugs and stuff. Mm. So what actually changed when you became a Christian? Because it mm. sounds like your lifestyle wouldn't have changed dramatically. Mm. What did change? Well, when I became a Christian, football wasn't God anymore. Jesus was God. So football fell into its right place. Um, and that's the same for everyone. You know, we always enthrone something in our lives as, as God in place of where God should be. Uh, that's what we call, you know, idolatry. Um, and uh, for me, it had been football. Ultimately, it had been me because I was the footballer and everything had been about me and doing well and, and, and what I could achieve. Um, but when Jesus is God, when Jesus is central in your life, then your whole life, your motivation, uh, your reason for living, the reason for what you for doing what you do changes, and that's the thing. It's the heart attitude for why you do what you do. Um, and then, of course, as a Christian, you know we're, we're in a local church, we're hearing the Word of God taught, and yes, you will gradually be conformed to the pattern of Jesus's life. Now you went from QPR to Gillingham. Um, why? That's quite a step down, isn't it? Why did you do that? Yeah, I, I went. I was nineteen, I think, at the time, nearly twenty. Um, and my father, by this time, my father had retired from playing and gone into management. He was the manager of of Gillingham, just a little bit down out in the A2 there, and um, and he had br- been bringing through players. In, uh, they were in the, the old third division, so two divisions down from 
QPR, but he'd had a good footballing team, bringing players like Steve Bruce, who went on to play for Manchester United, Tony Casarino, local boy, uh, went on to play for Chelsea and Celtic and, um, and the likes. And uh, I, again, I was still living at home, and my dad had injury problems in midfield, and he said, I was sitting at breakfast one morning thinking, I really need a midfielder. He said, and I looked across and saw, thought, my son will do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was at QPR, and I, I'd broken into the first team by this time, um, but I, I was in and out, and I, I'll admit, I was probably a bit impatient to play regularly uh, in the first team. And then my dad came and said, would you would fancy coming on loan for a month to Gillingham and you'll play every week? Mind you, playing for your dad, people ask me, what was it like playing for your dad? And I said, well, he told me this. He said, you'll have two bad games and then you'll be dropped. Um, so he did, you know, he wasn't doing me any favours there. Um, but it was good because I played every week. I played six games in a month. And, and that was, for me, better than reserve team football and the odd appearance in the first team. And so I actually ended up going to Gillingham f- full time. And from Gillingham, you went to Bournemouth, and there was a certain Harry, someone or other, who was manager. Yeah, so um, played for my dad at Gillingham, and then Harry Redknapp, as you, you, who you'll know, um, was this bright young manager at, at Bournemouth. Bournemouth were in the uh, what would be what is it, the first division now, so the, you know the second tier under Harry. They had some really good uh, players. Young Jamie Redknapp, Harry's son, was was literally coming through into the first team at age sixteen. And, um, and Harry bought me, and I had a year there. Um, we actually got relegated my first year there, um, so it was a bit disappointing. And the next season began, and uh, I remember training, and Harry was on the sidelines, and he's walking up and down, he's on his phone. Now, Harry's often on his phone. If you see Sky Sports, he's often on his phone. He's often putting a bet on the dogs or the horses, because he likes a bit of a gamble. But now and again, he's doing a little bit of business with players. And he pulled me after training and he said, uh, Gavin, Newcastle United had come in for you. And uh, I thought, yes, that's the move that I wanted to, to get back to the big time again. And I remember going home to uh, my wife, Amanda. We'd been married only a year. And we'd just got our nice little house in Bournemouth. It's really nice down in Bournemouth. Right on the ocean there. Slow pace of life. Get a little bit better weather. Um, <laughs> beaches there and, uh, and I went in to the house I said, Amanda, I said Newcastle United have come in for me I said, I think we've got to go and she just burst into tears <laughs> and she said, where's Newcastle? <laughs> I said, it's up north and it's really cold I said, but it's a big team and uh, it was the next step for me and things really took off for me as a player at Newcastle just before we get to that, if we go back to Bournemouth and Gillingham, mm. <coughs> they both went down, didn't they? They were both relegated. <laughs> I'm mean, sorry, I'm not... Um, I thought we could skip that part, but anyway. How did you cope with that as a Christian? So, mm. presumably you prayed about things, and, you know, if you go down, how did you process that as a Christian? Yeah, well, I think, you, you know, as, as a, firstly, I want to say that, yeah, it shows just because you become a Christian that things don't always go well for you outwardly in terms of your circumstances. Some people think, oh yeah, become a Christian. Yeah, get a better life now. Well, that's obviously not the case, you know. We had two relegations in two years. But processing it as a Christian is that, you know, uh, my identity, my happiness, uh, my goals weren't tied up ultimately in football. Now, I was a footballer. That was my job. But first, I was a Christian. Um, And so, I could kind of ride the ups, the ups as well as the downs, 
uh, with a certain amount of equilibrium because my focus was on Jesus. I knew that trials come in this life, uh, that as a Christian you live um, not your best life now, ultimately, but it's to come, so there's great hope in that. And yet the hope of, uh, of, of heaven in the future, the hope of eternal life to come, um, actually gives you confidence to live in the present through uh, the difficulties that you might face. And then your trials you face actually strengthen your faith because, uh, and also as a witness to people around because they say, how can you have joy when everything around you is moving? when all the things that we might think uh, would give us happiness are taken away from you. You say, because I have a greater joy in Jesus and a greater confidence in him. So that's how I managed it in, in the football life. So then you went to Newcastle. Things really took off. Um, tell us about that. Who was manager when you went? Uh, well, the first manager that bought me was Jim Smith. Maybe some of you might remember him. He's not a manager now, but a good old manager. He gave me my debut at QPR, and then we'd both gone on our separate ways, and he ended up getting a Newcastle job, and and bought me, uh, and then uh, Ozzy Ardiles came in. Remember him? Yeah, great player for, for Tottenham. World Cup winner in 1978, Maradona's mentor. So this is the greatness of Ozzy as a, as a player. He was Maradona's mentor, and he came in uh, to, to manage us at, at Newcastle. was great for the young players, but he only lasted about a year because we were conceding quite a few goals. And then we signed the masterstroke. Um, I remember driving, I was driving over the Tyne Bridge to go back after training and I heard on the radio that we've signed Kevin Keegan uh, as our manager and that was, that was the key to us uh, going back up again. So what was he like to play for as a manager? Kevin was, uh, people often ask me about Kevin and say, oh, what was he like, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot, many of you, maybe, you, you know, you're in leadership positions in your companies or, or what have you, you study leadership, and I always looked at my managers and thought, what can I learn from them, all, all good leaders, and a um, couple of things with Kevin, um, he was a great visionary, so, so he would, he would show you where you could go, even beyond what you think you could do, and then make you believe you could get there, and show you the steps to get there, and that's what he did with us at Newcastle. And then the real good thing about him is he's a great man-manager, a great motivator of men. So he knew what to say to you to get you going. That would be different as what he would say to you. So I remember then his first game, his first game in charge at St. James's Park, Newcastle Stadium. It's, it was packed out because Keegan was, well, they called him the Messiah, he was the one that was coming to save Newcastle. Keegan had actually played for Newcastle as a player, and he was one of football's first millionaires. And he retired and moved to Marbella for seven years, played golf with Sean Connery. He was playing golf, I think, when Newcastle called him and said, we want you as our manager. So he came back. He'd been out of the game for seven years, and yet he'd seen videos of us playing, and he, uh, he was going around the dressing room, to all the different players, and I was watching him. I was sitting in the corner, and he's going to this one and this one. And then he came to me, and he looked in my eyes. He said, you're the one today. You're the man. And I went, whoa. <laughs> he, said, he said, Bill Shankly used to say to me. Now, now, Bill Shankly was a great manager for Liverpool when Kevin Keegan played for Liverpool back in the day. So he's a legendary figure in the, in the mould of an Alec Ferguson, what he did for Manchester United. And he treated Kevin Keegan as a son, as a player. Great Scottish manager, uh, Bill Shankly was. 
And, and Keegan says, Bill Shankly used to say to me, just go out and drop hand grenades all over the field. In other words, you are the danger man. Just go and cause trouble wherever you go on that field today. And I thought, Bill Shankly said that to Kevin Keegan. Kevin Keegan's saying that to me. <laughs> Keegan's one of my heroes. He's treating me like a son. I burst out the tunnel. I, I remember running all day. I, we won 3-0. I think I'm, I made a couple of goals. And, um, and, and so that just gives you a flavor of Keegan and the way he can motivate players. And it's true because when he got the England manager's job a, a, a few years later, um, his first game was, I think, Poland at Wembley. And Paul Scholes, who was a similar kind of goal-scoring midfield player uh, to me, he said Keegan, the words that I'd said, Keegan's a great motivator of, of men. And I read the article in the paper on the Sunday. He said, Keegan's a great motivator of men. He said to me in the dressing room beforehand, Bill Shankly used to say to me, go out. I thought I was special, you know, but obviously it, I wasn't. It was just the thing he needed to say to me. That was Keegan. And what's it like um, playing competitively as a Christian? So some might have the impression that you'd be saying, well, uh, after you, after you. But if you're going, <laughs> dropping hand grenades around the field, I mean, how, does the, how do the two go together? <laughs> Maybe if some people saw, saw me play, they might have said, yeah, you did play like that after you go on. You never made a tackle. Um, no, I think the way I um, embraced it as a Christian um, is that, you know, I was a Christian first and then I was in the world of professional football. So what did the game demand? The game demanded me to be competitive. And if I was against my opponent, I'd want to beat them to the ball. I'd want to uh, uh, beat them in the tackle. I'd want to score against them. I'd want to win. Um, and I was very disappointed if we lost. And yet, winning wasn't everything to me. Jesus was more important. So then I really wanted to win, but if we lost, there was a way that you could, I could lose with a certain grace. Um, Alan Hansen once said, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. <laughs> show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. And I think as a Christian, though, you can actually be a good loser and still have that competitive instinct to to want to beat the opposition on the, on the field. And I think I played. I wasn't the kind of player that you know was renowned as a great tackler, but I played with an aggressive mindset. You know, to get into the opposition's box and to score goals and to do damage to them. And, and I would run up and down all day. And, and if I was playing against you, Marcus, I'd want to beat you. I don't know about that. Even though we're Christians, wouldn't be hard. Um, <laughs> You then moved south, so from Newcastle, came back to London, um, signed for Chelsea. What sort of players were in the team when you were playing back in... This was 93, wasn't it? So who yeah. else would have been in there that we might know? Well, you would have known um, uh, the likes of uh, Dennis Wise, of course. He was captain, cheeky chappy, but he was a good player. Uh, Tony Cascarino. And then we began to sign players like... By the time I, I left Chelsea, we were signing players like Ruud Hullet. Uh, great Dutch player, world footballer of the year, Gianfranco Zola, uh, Gianluca Viali, who I got this haircut from, um, and, uh, and players like that. So we really started to splash out money towards the end of my time at Chelsea. But Glenn changed the culture in the club. Glenn Hoddle changed the culture. So he was the player manager? He was the player manager. and he, he actually was the best player I played with. Even out of all of that lot, people asked me, who was the best? I said, Glenn. Glenn was a maestro. It was as if he had a computer in his mind and he could see everything that was going to happen on the field and every option, and he always played the right pass. And Like, I'd make a run from midfield if Glenn was on the ball behind me and I'd just hear it coming. 
and drop in my path. I didn't even have to break stride, and he could hit it right foot, left foot. Um, so Glenn was player manager, a brilliant player, but began to change the, the flavour of things at Chelsea. Hmm. And so your first season at Chelsea went pretty well. Um, as a Man U player, uh, Man U fan, I find this hard to say, but tell us what the highlight of your first season was. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know you'll have revenge at some point with a Man U's uh, record, but. Uh, yeah, for me personally, you know, I, I signed for 1.25 million was the transfer fee. Seems like nothing now. Uh, and it was a decent fee in those days. Uh, when you see what Neymar, I think it went for a, a few months ago, it's crazy. Uh, but yeah, um, Man United, I play, we played against them at Stamford Bridge early in, in the season and we beat them. We beat them 1-0 at home and then we beat them 1-0 away. So we did the double over them uh, in that season. The 1-0 at home, I, I scored the goal. Um, and then uh, I remember that as well quickly because uh, Eric Cantona was playing for Manchester United in, in that game and he hit the crossbar from the halfway line um, and, and I, I scored the goal that won us the game but Glenn Hoddle was brilliant and Cantona was a you know, great French player and he had the He's very. I think he did poetry and stuff. Not many footballers do poetry, yeah. But in the papers on the Sunday, he he was raving about Glenn Hoddle, and he said, "Oh, Glenn Hoddle." Uh, not that you could hear a French accent in the papers, but um, he said Glenn Hoddle. He was like Mozart in a world full of heavy rockers on the football. <laughs> Something that makes me one of the heavy rockers. Um, but yeah, one nil at home, and then we went up to uh, Old Trafford in March of that year, and Glenn said to us, you know, because, I mean, Old Trafford's an intimidating place to play, uh, massive crowd there, it's, I don't know, 70,000, whatever. Um, he said, we'll have a game plan, we'll be defensive, we'll stay tight, they've got flying wingers, Ryan Giggs and Andrei Kanchelskis, Russian winger, and they've got Cantona and Hughes and Roy Keane and all these great players. We'll stay defensively tight, and he said, you might get one chance in the game, but you've got to put it away. And he had a word with me, he said, you might be able to break in and it came true. Second half came. The ball was knocked into uh, our striker, Mark Steen, quite a small guy, but he jumped high and he headed it into the space. And now I'm seeing the ball bounce into the box. And I sprinted into the gap. Now all I can see coming out to me is big Peter Schmeichel, the Danish goalkeeper, six foot four, and he is looming large now. He's like a big bear coming out the goal. And I'm looking at the ball and thinking, I need to get there first because he's huge and he's big and he looks aggressive. So I'm running and I'm thinking, I've got to get there. If I can just get there, I can just clip it over him and, and, and I, I got there. As he got there, I just flicked it over him and he booted me in the thigh because he was nasty like that because I got there first and he kicked me and I had stud marks. But anyway, I was spinning in the air, watching the ball bounce and bounce and bounce and Steve Bruce, the Man United centre-back, was running back and it went in and over the line and it was 1-0 to us. The Chelsea fans were down in the corner and we did the double over Man U. Then we played them in the FA Cup final. <laughs> Um, but the season ended better for, uh, for Man U. Just tell us about that. So FA Cup final? Sure, yeah. Um, Man U had won the league. They were a better team than us, but we'd been the bogey team for them in the league. And then we got to the FA Cup final, and we, we play against Manchester United. So the scene was set. You know, Reds v Blues, North v South, the Cockney boys v the, the, the Northerners. Um, and, of course, we're the bogey team for them in the league. And we went out at Wembley. There's nearly 100,000 people there that day. Um, it's an electric atmosphere at Wembley, an FA Cup final. You walk out the tunnel, it used to be like an elongated tunnel, and, and what happens is, as you walk out, the tunnel's like long like that, so they see you down the bottom end before anyone else, and so they start to roar, and it's like a whoosh, it comes around the back of you. 
an amazing occasion. He literally makes the hair stand on edge. And, and Glenn Hodward said, keep the same game plan, nice and tight. We might get a break. Um, doing the same thing, the ball dropped to me after uh, about 20 minutes. Uh, and I just caught the ball really sweetly, hit it with a, a left foot volley, and it started to fly over the top of, of Peter Schmeichel again. And you wouldn't believe it, but it, that this could happen in an FA Cup final. But for me, it just literally it went into slow motion as I began to watch it. Um, and I'm watching Big Schmeichel start to backpedal, and it's going over his head, and I'm thinking, it's going in. It's going in, we're going to score again. And he started to backpedal. I'm thinking, if we, if we score now, it's going to be 1-0 to Chelsea. Peacock scores again. United are going to think it's not their year. We'll have one hand on the, on the cup. And he backpedaled, backpedaled, and bang! It hit the crossbar, and, uh, and it came out. Went fast motion again, you know, obviously. We went in at, uh, at half-time, nil-nil. Uh, and Glenn Hoddle said to us, he said, doing great, lads. Just be very careful. You don't think you do anything silly in the second half early on. So what did we do? Very silly thing. One of our players dived into one of their players and brought him down. It was a penalty kick. This was a penalty kick. It was inside the box. Um, and the one player that you don't want to take a penalty against you at Wembley, FA Cup final, Eric Cantona. And he, you know, the Frenchman. Who knows Eric Cantona in here? Quickly put your hand up. Oh, so a good amount of you, yeah. So you remember he used to wear his collar up. Like, you know, and he had that little bit of swagger. And he picked up the ball, and he's gone and put it on the spot. This is a true story. Puts it on the spot, and he stands there. The collar goes up, looks around. He's at Wembley, FA Cup final. Goes to the edge of the box, sets himself again. And I told you about Dennis Wise, didn't I? He's our captain. Now, Dennis is cheeky. And Dennis went up to Eric Cantona, and he looked up at Eric, because Eric's tall. Dennis is very small. And he said, 50 quid says you miss. <laughs> Which is the truth. FA Cup final. 50 quid says you miss. And Eric, he just went, he didn't even answer him. Sets his collar, makes sure it's up, strolls up, rolls it one side, our goalkeeper dived the other, one nil down. Well done, Dennis. You know, that tactic really worked. <laughs> and then after about 10 more minutes, uh, our defender, Frank Sinclair, was running back towards his own goal and he was shoulder to shoulder with the Russian winger, Andrei Kanchelskis. And they went shoulder to shoulder. Kanchelskis went to the ground and the referee, David Ellery, pointed to the spot. But it was outside the box, so it shouldn't have been a penalty. I know I need to get over that because that was 20-odd years ago now, but it was <laughs> definitely not a penalty. But anyway, it's a penalty. He gave it and, and then Cantona stepped up again. Does the same thing. Puts the ball on the spot, puts the collar up, looks around. Now we're all fuming, you know. Steps to the edge of the box, stops. And this time he goes over to Dennis. <laughs> he looks down at Dennis and he says, double or nothing. <laughs> and Dennis was like that. And he strolled up, bang, same side, bottom corner, two penalties. We're 2-0 down. And then we tried to get the game back. And uh, I, think, I think actually uh, at the end of that, we lost 4-0, by the way. <laughs> Dennis signed a £50 note for Eric and he actually gave him the, the money. Shame, 4-0. Hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did you... You work as a pastor now, we'll come on to that in a minute, but did you see what you were doing as serving God? So playing football as a Christian, were you thinking, I'm serving God, and in, in what way? Yeah, well, the Bible says uh, whatever you do, whether you eat and drink, do all to the glory of God. So as a Christian, you, you serve God in whatever you do because you do it all to the glory of God. You do it all for him in his name. 
to, to ultimately point to him. God gives us all gifts that are to be used for him back for his glory. So I think of it like this, you know, um, uh, in some ways football is like worship. You know, people go to a stadium, the stadium is almost like the church. They come to worship. They, they want to be together in, in this whole thing. So they have a team and, and yet the players are the focus of their worship. And so it shows an echo in all of us that we want to experience something and praise something that's bigger than us, that's outside of ourselves, that's beautiful, that's thrilling, that's glorious. We, we like to look at glory. And um, obviously football and the players then become that focus for people. And yet as a player, I know that ultimately it's about God's glory and pointing to him. And so I was using, you know, there is an intelligence and a wisdom that is shown that God gives. He gives people all sorts of gifts, but there's an academic um, mental intelligence that some people in the city will use. They can work out figures and facts and business and what have you. There's an intelligence and wisdom that sportsmen have and footballers have in the way that you use your body, the way that you can um, do things at top speed, the skill it takes to do that and the mental strength and, and and the vision that it takes. So I would see that all encompassed under God's good hand and giftings, and I would even think that as I'm doing these things, um, it points to him, ultimately, and if people ask me about it, it points to him, and it provides, you know, people come pay their money uh, to watch you play, so you're, you're providing, hopefully, good work for them, and they, they, you remember the film Chariots of Fire, some of you may have remembered it, the, the great Scottish um, athlete, uh, Eric Liddell, who, you know, he was a great Olympian, a rugby player, and he, Christian, gave it up to become a missionary in, in China. Um, he said before he went to China, this was words attributed to him, this, that God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure because I was fast. He made me fast. And I can actually say, you know, when I actually played and played well and executed skills, like scoring a goal like that, you, I could f- feel the pleasure of God. And it was then echoed then in back, back to him. Um, so that's the way that I would even think about my own uh, football career. And then you went back to QPR, um, retired, and joined the BBC. Just tell us, what were you doing there for the BBC? Yeah, the, the BBC media work was really becoming quite big then. As, so it was often, when footballers retired, what do they do? You know, you've left school at 16. Um, maybe you're going to coaching. I considered that. I've kind of been captain at all of my teams, so I was looking at that kind of stuff. But then the media stuff came... BBC uh, brought me on board and um, I began, you know, doing the Africa Cup of Nations with Garth Crooks and then I moved on to Football Focus and then Match of the Day, Match of the Day 2 I was doing with Lee Dixon, former Arsenal player and, and I got a niche doing that, went to World Cups and, and I was working with Alan Shearer and uh, Gary Lineker, Alan Hansen, you, you, most of you will remember uh, Alan Hansen, uh, great great Scottish uh, player, but good pundit. And I really enjoyed six years, and it was really going well. I mean, I wasn't the best player who'd ever lived, and all these players have got, you know, they've won championships and played uh, hundreds of games for, for their country, and there was me, <laughs> relegated twice with uh, Bournemouth and Gillingham, and didn't have that CV that they had. So I had to be quite good at um, what I did on the TV, thinking about how it would be presented to people at home. Um, and really enjoyed six years working for the BBC. And Hanson's advice to you was what? Oh, Alan Hanson gave me a good piece of advice. I said to him when I was early on in the BBC, I said, Al, I said, what's the secret of being a good pundit? And he said in his broad Scottish accent, he went, Gavin, he said, it's not what you see, it's the way you see it. (laughs) 
and I thought that probably summed up Alan's career at punditry. Now, you, you gave that up, and you moved to Canada hmm. to become a pastor. Just tell us why you did that. So you had it all. I mean, you were being watched by millions, and presumably people would stop you in the street, and they'd recognize you. You wow. were a known face and so on. Yeah. And you sort of stepped from that into obscurity, really, in Canada. Just tell what was going on. Yeah. Um, well, I think my profile-wise and fame-wise, I was more famous even for the BBC work than I was for play- when I was playing football. Because your, your face is on people's TV screens, millions of, of, of screens every single week. And then you do World Cups. And, and so, yeah, people would stop me in the street or... <laughs> Little, little old ladies would look at you as you went past, like, I kind of recognise you, but I can't really place you. Well, you've been on their TV screen in their living room the night before. Um, so, yeah, the, it was going very, very well, and I really in, did enjoy it. Um, and yet I, I hadn't really sensed any call to full-time ministry until about 10 years ago when I was working for the BBC. Um, and, you know, I was reading the Word of God and I was seeing about the need to, to preach and to teach God's Word and to teach the Gospel. And I thought, well, maybe it's something I should do. But then I thought, well, that's just an internal call. That's subjective. So I told the leaders in my church and they said, well, we recognize certain gifts. We'll test you out. So then it was going to be tested outside of my own feelings because I could have thought I'd be best, the next best pre- preacher in the world and could have been very, very wrong. Um, and so I was preaching, still working for BBC. Then I started to do some studies, Old Testament, New Testament, um, on, on a Monday and a Wednesday. So uh, all the guys that I'm, I'm in with in, the, in my studies in seminary, they're all like wanting to talk about football. <laughs> oh, what about Arsenal? What did you say on uh, Saturday about Man United? What did you say about... T-? And I'm just, I want to study the Bible here. And you just want to... So that was quite funny. And, I, and then I began to, to think, what would it look like to go away from everything for a while? to anonymity, where, where people would just hear what you have to say from, from the Word of God. Obviously, I could have stayed here. Um, and we'd been going to Canada quite a lot, and so we knew it. We knew Western Canada a little bit. So I said to my wife, and we, we thought through it. We prayed through it. Um, we took our kids out of school, 15 and 11. We want, even that, you know, showing them that security doesn't lie in the, the best school, or even in family, or even in a country, but it will lie in God alone. Um, and I said to my wife, it will be a good time for me to, to do my preparation, and then we may look at, may look at coming back after that. Um, and I ended up staying there because I got offered a position at church in Calgary, and now we're nine years there. My son married a Canadian girl last year. My daughter's engaged now. I'm going to be married next year. And the, the basic... Um, you can clap if you want. You can clap. <laughs> that, that, only ha- that engagement with my daughter only happened a few weeks ago, so it's, it's good news. The basic message then that you're teaching as a, a pastor of a church in Canada is the same message that you didn't know when you were growing up as a child, so you weren't brought up in a Christian home, but which you came to understand when you went to those Bible studies aged 18 or whatever it was. Mm. Can you just tell us, give us a few minutes on what is this message, if you had to sum it up? So this message, sure. the good news about Jesus, people say. Yeah. How would you sum that up? Well, the, the, the good news about Jesus' season can be summed up in one of the verses of, of the Bible, um, John 3.16. Have we got it there? Oh, well, then we've got you there as well. We've got John Watson, but not go. John 3.16. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a bit more important than Motti. Um, yeah, it can be summed up, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so I went to this 
Bible study. And when I said, you know, the minister, he kind of began to unpack the gospel. What does gospel mean? It means good news. It's the good news of what God has done for people like us to save us uh, from our sins. And and I, I, I thought God was up there somewhere. I told you uh, that, but God was there to give me a better life. And then the minister began to show me from the Bible who this God was. And, you know, it begins with God, doesn't it, that, that passage there. And he showed me even from the first pages of the Bible, we see that God created the heavens and earth. So God created the universe and everything in it. And I, I think there's something in all of us that kind of, we, we have that sense that there's somebody bigger than us. When you, where I live, you, you, you don't really see it too much here because of all the smog, but you can see stars in the sky at night in Alberta and the, the mountains are amazing. And sometimes I look up and, and there's sheets and sheets and sheets, innumerable stars in the, in the sky. And I think like there's billions of stars and there's, and there's billions of galaxies and galaxy upon galaxy. And, and then you look at the Bible and the Bible says, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. And it declares his glory. It declares to us, all people, who he also created, something about him. Uh, First pages of the Bible tell us that that in Genesis, that God made man, male and female, in his image. And so the first thing that struck me about that, the the God bit, that was I feel very small because God is very big and he created me. And uh, and yet I feel very valued because he created me and us in his image to, to say something about him by the lives we live in obedience to him. Um, and then the, the minister began to show me, and yet there's a big problem. Even from like three chapters into the Bible, we see that the first man and woman that God created actually could have, he said, eat from any tree of the garden except that one. And they chose to eat from one tree that they shouldn't. So that's rebellion against God. That's sin. And now, ever since then, everybody in the world has sinned. Everyone in here has sinned. And some people say, yeah, that, well, yeah, of course I sinned. And there's a couple of things about that, really, um, is that most people say, yeah, I sin, but there's no sense that you sin against God, and there ought to be consequence for that sin. Um, And also that sin is not just the things you do, it's what you are. You sin because you're a sinner, it's in your nature to sin. So I began to see, right, God is, he's all-powerful, and he's holy and good, and I was created by him, and yet me, like everyone else, has sinned against him. And so the minister says, so what does a good God do with wicked people? What ought he to do? How can he dwell with them? What should he do? If he's just, what should he do? And I, I actually speak in, um, in prisons now and again, and prisoners get this. I say, if you've got a guilty criminal stand in front of a judge, if he's a just judge, what should he do with the criminal? And they all go, we've got to punish the criminal. I said, because otherwise he'd be unjust, right? If he just winks at the murderer and says, I'll let you off, he's an unjust judge. And a lot of people think God is like an unjust judge because they go, well, he's forgiving, he'll just forgive me. But he can't just forgive you. Somebody's got to pay the price. And now I'm thinking, well, I'm now under the judgment of God. And the Bible speaks about the judgment of God a lot. I mean, you know, we don't like to talk about hell or consequence or judgment or justice when it comes to God too much. Um, but Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Um, and, and, and to go to hell is to remain under God's judgment without your sins forgiven. So at this stage of the, of the, uh, of the minister's presentation of the gospel, I'm thinking, where's the gospel? 
I thought it was good news. But I'm realizing I'm actually a sinner against God under the judgment of God. But the good news is God is just, okay? He's perfectly just, but he's amazingly loving and merciful at the same time. So the, the words there said, for God so loved the world. It, did, it, it doesn't mean that God thought the world was so great. He so loved the world because the world was so great. Actually, the world is in sin against God, but he so loved the world. He loved the world in such a way that this demonstration of his love is that he gave his only son. It's a gift. Jesus is given. He, he comes willingly. He's the son of God and he comes fully God and yet fully man. Walked around just like you and me. Talked and walked with us. Lived a perfect life in obedience to God, which none of us can ever do. That's the thing. What's the standard to get into heaven? You want to get into heaven, anyone in here? Live a perfect life. Don't break God's laws. Well, of course, no one in here can do that. So Jesus comes, lives as a man, fully God, fully man, obeys God perfectly. Now we've got another problem, though. Um, we haven't obeyed God perfectly, but we, we need to pay for the sins that we've done. Justice must be done. Otherwise, he's an unjust judge, remember? How does God deal with that? Jesus goes in the place of people like you and me to the cross, and on the cross, he takes the judgment of God upon him. God's wrath, which is his holy anger against sin, he takes on himself in our place. That's a display of God's love. Anyone ever done that for you? That is amazing love that he would do that, and his own son would willingly say, Father, I'll go, I'll stand in their place, I'll take the punishment in their place. And that for anyone who would believe in him, there is eternal life. That they wouldn't perish in hell, but have eternal life. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He died on the cross, and then he rose again three days later, and he ascended to God's right hand. And, and he will come again uh, to judge the living and the dead, everyone. And he'll take his church, those who have trusted in him, uh, to him, and the others will be banished to to hell, and so it's almost like, um, you know, some people say, if there's a loving God, how's there so much suffering in the world and so much evil? And, and I'm saying, if there's a loving and holy God, how is there any world at all? He should just wipe the world out. You're asking the wrong question. It's as if God's holding judgment back now with one hand and saying, "Come, come, come! Now is their mercy. My Son died for you. If you will believe in Him." And it's not just about, belief isn't just about, oh yeah, I believe God exists. It, it's about a living trust in him. It's about repenting and believing. You know what repentance is? You might have heard it, you know. Repent, repent. Some people say, oh yeah, Bible bashers, they go on about repentance. But repentance is, is a change. It's a, a change of mind. It's not just a change like, you know, I think I prefer that beer over that beer now. I change my mind on it. No, this is a change of heart and emotions and will. You know, you ask the question is why you do what you do as a footballer. You know, how do you... Well, it's everything in you changes and now you live for uh, a different goal and a different person. So you see who he is in what he's done in the gospel, in the good news of giving his own son to die for sinners. And, uh, and you repent, you turn, you confess your sinner, you throw yourself upon him and no one else can do it. There's no other name among men by which you can be saved than Jesus Christ. Jesus is very inclusive. Anyone can come, whoever believes. But he's exclusive. He must believe in him. Because only he can do the job, see? 
and this is where Christianity stands up to, to other uh, religions, I'll just give you a quick uh, illustration. Um, imagine, um, you know, let's say that I've got Muslim friends, Jewish friends, Christian friends. If you have the, the Muslim, the, the Jew, and the Christian standing before God on Judgment Day, it sounds like a joke, doesn't it? <laughs> Englishman, Irishman, Scot- Scotsman, <laughs> Muslim, Jew, Christian, standing before God on Judgment Day, and, and God says, why should I let you in to the Muslim? The Muslim says, because I read the Quran, because I prayed three times a day, um, because I gave money uh, in, the, in the aid of Allah, um, because I did good works and looked after my family. And then he turns to the Jew and he says, why should I let you in? And, and, the, and the Jew says, um, because I read the Torah, because I went to synagogue regularly, because I tithed to, to, to the synagogue, because I lived a good life. And then he comes to the Christian and he says to the Christian, why should I let you into heaven? And the Christian says, you shouldn't. I broke every law in your book. I offended you in every way possible. I actually deserve hell. But because of Jesus Christ, your own dear son, his perfect life and his perfect work for me on the cross, because he said it's finished at the cross, that's why I can come in. You see the difference? He gave his son, it's a gift, and the Christian looks outside of themselves to another person to save them, not inside. And that's really freeing. That is really freeing. It's freeing that you, you, in the way that you, you're saved. It's freeing in the way that you live. Because you're not always trying to get into God's love. You, you obey him because you're already in his love. Um, so that's the gospel. And, uh, and so I urge, if you're not a Christian here today, you know, that's the gospel. I believed uh, after a few weeks of hearing it. And I repented. I turned and I put my trust in Jesus. I was saved. And you were saying it's not as if it sorts everything out in life. And, oh. you know, you can get relegated. Sorry, you know that. that. You can. Um, <laughs> and then also just Thanks in your family, um, tell us about the... Your first child and... Yeah. Well, put it this way. We were talking this afternoon, weren't we? And I was just thinking through it and saying, you know, some of the highest points in my football career were also tinged with a lot, with, with suffering and, and, and difficulty. So, for instance, you know, highest season, score against Manchester United twice, losing the FA Cup final. Yeah? So there's that, that sort of sadness. You hit a, a level and then there's that sadness got uh, promoted with Newcastle the season Kevin Keegan came and we got promoted to the Premier League and we rode on an open top bus ride around the city centre there was 100,000 Newcastle fans there I was captain signed a new contract high point of my career my wife Amanda was pregnant with our first child at the time and um, so could life get better it was so good it was great it was high and um, and then two weeks afterwards she she went into labour, and it was a very difficult labour. She was in labour two days, 48 hours, and uh, the cord was wrapped around his neck. And um, Anyway, he was born, and uh, we're just looking, looking, looking. Everyone was, you know, up. it was that long a labour. Our parents had got up from the London to Newcastle by this time, were waiting in the waiting room, just looking. Is a boy or a girl? He's a boy. And, and he went to cry, and he put his arms out the side, and I looked, and I saw that half of his right arm was missing. Um, the, so Jake was born. He's got a third of his his, his right arm. Um, and in those days, we had one scan. It's amazing to think just one scan in those days. Maybe the way he was lying, he didn't show up. Um, so you can imagine then, just from the highest you've ever felt to this kind of gut-wrenching feeling and not knowing 
what was going on. You know, not so much was known about limb deficiency then, and so they thought, could there be brain problems? Could there be heart issues, lungs, all of that? And then I had to go tell the parents, you know, there's a boy, but there's a problem, and all of this. And so, you know, there was a, there was at the highest point of my career, they, then there's this suffering that enters. And it's amazing that the, the surgeon, who wasn't a Christian, said to me and Amanda as we're kind of trying to get ourselves together, love, love this little baby we've got, and yet, you know, there's this issue. Um, we're trying to get our heads around it. He said, Amanda, Gavin, he said, this is Jake. He said, and this is the body that God has given him. So he instantly spoke the sovereignty of God, as it were, into our lives in a way that he didn't even understand. But it was true that if we didn't have God, if we didn't have the rock, if we didn't know he was in control of all things, um, we may have wobbled in, in those days. Um, but the point you're making is that, you know, as a Christian, and you as Christians here, you will have all suffered different things in your life. And yet suffering takes on a different purpose and you can embrace it in a different way uh, when you're a Christian in a way that you don't. It, it seems hopeless and purposeless when you're not a Christian. Now you're 50 this year, I know because we were born the same year. I'm older than you. He it's looks coming. younger though, doesn't he? Um, how do you see it as a Christian? Do you have, I mean, some people have sort of midlife crisis, think, oh boy, you know, I used to be so fit and now look, well, not, well you know, not quite as... Um, <laughs> Do you, how do you see that? How do you process that as a Christian? Do you feel, oh, no, my life is all going so quickly and uh, it's, do you have a crisis about it? Or um, no, I, I think, yeah, it can be that the 50 is the, oh, it's a big 5-0. And, but as a Christian, you know, you see, we, like every day is one, one day closer to heaven. You know, uh, the, the Apostle Paul in the Bible says in the book of Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. So everything I do is for Christ, and, and there's joy that I can have in this world because of Jesus, but to die is gain, because I get to be with Jesus forever. And so being a, you know, the gospel is not just a set of propositions, it's about a person and a living relationship with him. And so it's kind of win-win for the Christian, yeah? Win in this life, in difficulties, and then when you die, you get to be with him forever. And so as Christians then, as we get older, there's a kind of, all right, our bodies. Might be going south. There's a few people saying, yep, know what that means. We're all drooping and everything's dropping. But inside, we're strengthening as our faith gets stronger, as our hope grows more real, as we move towards the day where one day we'll be with our Lord forever, where there'll be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. All the things that you want rid of in this life will one day be true for the Christian. A couple of final questions. Um, Firstly... If someone was listening to this thinking, I'm pretty skeptical about what you've said. I've heard your summary of the good, the message about Jesus. What would you encourage them to do to take things forward from this evening if they're skeptical about it? Well, it, if you're skeptical, then, you know, I ask you to see if these claims of Jesus, which I've put to you, even from the Bible here, are true and, and look at the Bible yourself. If you're here with a Christian friend, speak to your Christian friend. I think we've got some resources, haven't we, that, we, that people can use uh, as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to... Um, sure, so on tables, there's various things. Uh, one of the Gospel accounts, you could take one of those away and have a read. That's these little booklets. The yellow booklets are... Um, the text of John's Gospel, or the first few verses, and then some sort of explanation. So this is something you could read with a Christian friend together and discuss it, use it as a basis of discussion. 
This other little card gives you details of things happening on the barge at Remembrance. So we've got a couple of colonels coming. It's like London bus, isn't it? You wait for ages and then two colonels coming in the same month to speak on the barge about Remembrance, um, various courses we run. So yeah, there's lots of things you could do to follow things up. Yeah. Um, goodness me, that's the rain. Um, we may not be going anywhere fast. But anyway, final question. Um, and I don't mean this in a morbid way, but what would you like your epitaph to be? <laughs> so if we were chiseling on your tombstone, what would you like your epitaph to be? What would you like to be remembered for? Well, there's lots of uh, very holy people that have lived and great Christians. And I'm now trying to think of something profound to say, you know, that would be really memorable. And, but I, I guess off the top of my head, <laughs> I, I would actually, you know, something like, you know, Football was great, but Jesus is greater. There's a greater glory, and there's a greater glory in my life. And, and ultimately, I think that's, that's what uh, I want to live for, is to, you know, Christians, a lot of people have the thing, oh, Christians, you know, you act like holier than thou, or, or you're better than everyone, and no, you're actually saying, look at me so I can point you to him. And that's what our lives should be. Like We should like be, be like arrows that, that point to Jesus. And we can enjoy the good gifts that he gives us, but all the time we're saying, Jesus is greater, and this is why. Your biggest need is to know your forgiveness of sin, be in a right relationship with him, and everything else will then find its right place in your life. It won't be easy. There'll be trials and tribulations, but the end is sure, and the glory is great, and you live for a greater glory in your life. Well, it seems like a good note to end on. Football is great, Jesus is greater, but Cantona, he's the good. No, <laughs> we won't put that in. Cantona's king, and that's what you wanted to say. Thank you very much, Gavin. It's been an absolute pleasure. We were going to have Q&A from the floor, but I'm aware that we've gone over our official finish time. So I think what we'll do is we'll officially finish here, and then if people want to come and buttonhole Gavin and have a chat, ask questions, we'll do that now. But thank you very much on behalf of everyone. Thank you.